You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Well, there are two, of course, main responses to the message of the gospel. Those who will receive the gospel and those who will reject the gospel. And obviously, those responses are varied and wide, but basically every response in the end boils down to a reception of or a rejection of this wonderful gospel message. And in John chapter 12, John is turning his gospel on its hinge. In other words, what we're concluding here in John chapter 12 is a section where Jesus has been opposed by the religious leaders and a section where many people have chosen to disbelieve in him. And John is actually going to conclude this section in John chapter 12 with an explanation for why people rejected the Lord. Then when we get into chapter 13, we're going to see this group of men who, although not entirely devoted to him, there was one who would betray him, uh, by and large were his disciples, uh, men that he would pour into, care for, and train for the coming days after his death, his burial, and his resurrection, the age of the church. And so we pick it up today in John chapter 12, verse 20. Now we've already seen that we're very near the Passover. Uh, we've already seen that large crowds of people are gathering to Jerusalem for the Passover week. And we've already seen that part of that crowd has been stirred up because of the miracle in which Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And that in response to that miracle, a part of this crowd gathered together and put their palm leaves down on the ground and began to sing and shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 in which Jesus prophesied as the Messiah would come into Jerusalem uh, as the king of Israel sitting on a donkey's colt. And so just a beautiful prophecy fulfilled things the disciples did not understand until after uh, Jesus rose from the grave. But now in the middle of all of that, you know, climactic energy and zeal surrounding Jesus, it says in verse 20 of John 12 that now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now this would be not altogether uncommon. Uh, there would be those who were not Jews, from a Greek culture or city or town or even Greece itself, although more than likely these uh, figures were not from actual Greece, but maybe from Syrophoenician, the Syrophoenician region or some other place like it near Israel who had heard of Christ. And these Greeks who had adopted at least some of the Jewish customs and practices or were perhaps all-out proselytes, they hear about Jesus and, 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 and they come in verse 21 to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And so we have this wonderful request from these Greek people. They come and they go to Philip. Now, 
We ask ourselves, why do they go to Philip? Uh, potentially, uh, it has a little to do with Philip's name. He had a Greek-styled name, so perhaps they felt they might have a better audience with Philip for some reason. If they were from the Syrophoenician region, uh, then perhaps they knew Philip. He was from Bethsaida, which bordered that region. And so perhaps there was some kind of advance or previous uh, relationship together. But nonetheless, for whatever reason, they approached Philip and they have this wonderful statement. They say, we wish to see Jesus. Now, this is our one desire. This is our one heart. We want to see Jesus. A great request. Now, Philip does something interesting. He then goes to Andrew. The two of them, apparently after talking, felt that it was still worthy to be brought to Jesus. And so they together go to Jesus with this simple request. Now, why a request in the first place? Well, Jesus had grown incredibly popular. You have to imagine that there was the necessity for some kind of screening process when in a heavily populated area like Jerusalem. And why did they confer together? Why did Philip go to Andrew and I can't say for certain, but perhaps it had a little to do with the confusion regarding Jesus' stance on Gentile people. You know, uh, on the one hand, he would heal or cast the demon out of the Syrophoenician woman's son. He would take care of the servants of centurions. He would go into Samaria and minister to a Samaritan woman. He was known to cross over those cultural divides. But on the other hand, he would say things like, uh, I have been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He would say things like, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I have wanted to gather you together, like a mother hen gathers her chicks. And so you can sense perhaps the confusion amongst the disciples. What is Jesus' stance concerning the Gentile world. And Jesus answered, verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, as is typical in the book of John, when someone comes to Jesus with some type of request or question, Jesus responds with an answer that is altogether mysterious in nature. Here, Andrew and Philip come to Jesus saying, hey, there's this group of Greeks. They would like to see you. Are you willing to see them? A real yes or no kind of question. But Jesus responds first by saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, this is big news in John's Gospel. First of all, that the hour has come. Jesus has time and time again said, My hour has not yet come. And so here he announces, My hour has come. He says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, the Son of Man is the title that Jesus used for himself, that he borrowed from Ezekiel and also from Daniel. And so he says that the hour has come for me to be glorified. For me to be glorified. Now, 
what does this have to do with the Greeks? What in the world does it have to do with the question that he's been asked? Are you willing to see these Gentile people? Well, the answer is found in the next statement of Jesus, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so Jesus moves on into this analogy. He says, you know, my hour has come for me to be glorified. And then he starts talking about a grain that goes into the earth and dies. And when it dies, it then produces fruit because that seed then grows and it produces a harvest. Now, Jesus is obviously alluding to himself. In just a few verses, he's going to tell everyone, I must be lifted up, indicating the type of death with which he would die, death by crucifixion. He's very conscious of his death. That's why he said, my hour has now come. And so he's announcing to his disciples, hey, it's great that these Gentiles want to meet with me. That's not bad in and of itself. But in order for me to bear fruit in their nations and amongst their people, there's a very crucial thing that must take place. It's called my glorification. And Jesus describes his glorification in terms like this. Like a seed or a grain of wheat, I must die. Jesus is announcing that in order for the Gentile world to be reached, he must go to the cross. He must die. And so he announces to them his glorification. He announces to them what his glorification is, and it's his death. You know, for most people, our death is our most humiliating uh, moment and experience. You know, when the body begins to decay, and the body begins to die, and the body begins to slowly but surely break down, not just the exact moment of death, where we would say, at one moment they were light, uh, alive. With one breath they were alive, and after they exhaled that breath, they then died. No, but you think about just the slow, agonizing process, if we're graced enough to live into our older years. The, just the slow process of death coming on. You know, the, the body no longer getting stronger and stronger, but getting weaker and weaker. It's something that can last for 50 years, going through this process of death. But it's our most inglorious moment. But Jesus referred to the moment of his death, humiliation, as his glorification. It would be his greatest moment. It would be his strongest act of love. It would be the purpose for which he came forth. And so Jesus says, look, unless I, like a grain of wheat, go into the ground and die, I cannot bear any fruit. It won't do these Gentiles any good to see me unless I stay busy about my task and get to that cross. But in addition, Jesus also then in verse 25 and 26 gives this little explanation about what people who follow him will look like. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he'll follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so there is this promise from Jesus. 
you know, he bears fruit according to his kind. Genesis 1 and 2, that's the common refrain. That uh, the animals or the seeds or the, the, the plants, the uh, birds of the air, the animals in the ocean, they would reproduce after their kind. And so does Jesus. He dies, is buried like that grain of wheat, is risen, bears fruit, and the fruit has a similarity in look and feel and taste to him. And that's why he says that his disciples will follow him. They'll lay down their lives. Their love for God will be so intense that it'll be as if they're hating their own lives. They will serve him. Uh, this is what his people will look like. Now, verse 27, he goes on and he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so Jesus begins to express openly now the agony and the sorrow uh, that he is enduring just as a man as he approaches the cross. He announces, now is my soul troubled. Now this is really in one sense, it's kind of like John's Garden of Gethsemane account. Not that it is that account, not that it occurred there, but in the other Gospels, we read of Jesus going to Gethsemane for an all-night prayer meeting with his disciples, and it was there that he was betrayed uh, and arrested and all of that. Uh, but, but here we're beginning to get a glimpse into the sorrow that we see more fully in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus begins to speak now openly of his sorrow. And he asks out loud, what will I say, Father? save me from this hour? He says, no, this is the very purpose that I came forth. I've got to press on in this hour and endure in this hour. And so he's not afraid, he's very brave, but he's expressing the sorrow in his heart. And, and in response, he cries out with a prayer in verse 28, where he says, Father, glorify your name. Just sort of out loud for all to see, Father, glorify your name. And a voice, and, and, and this was, as I should say, the mission of Christ, to glorify the name of his Father. A mission that every believer would do well to adopt. And a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And so the Father obviously speaks. Jesus speaks to the Father, says, Father, glorify your, your name. A voice comes from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This is no doubt the Father speaking. Jesus speaks to the Father. The, the Father returns his voice, emblematic, so to speak, of uh, you know Jesus' true identity as the Son of God. Uh, but, but it's worth noting, at least, that this is the third time that the Father has spoken from heaven to his Son in a very public manner. First, you had the baptism of Jesus. And at his baptism, when he came out of the water, the Father spoke, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, it's important to note that at the baptism of Jesus, his death was in view. That's what the baptism was all about, going into the water and coming out of the water. For Jesus, it was looking forward to his going into death and being raised from the grave. It was really the beginning of saying, here we go. I am now going to begin to go through this process where I'm atoning for the sin of mankind. 
And then later on in the life and ministry of Christ, he took Peter, James, and John to the mountaintop where he prayed and was transfigured before them. And Moses and Elijah came and spoke to Jesus. And Peter came up with the idea to build tents to remain there forever. And a cloud descends upon them. Moses and Elijah vanish. And the father speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Now in that moment, again, it was also really surrounding and centered upon the cross of Christ. He, he was, you know, really in one sense, you know, there was this kind of, he's pure, he's holy, he's righteous, he's fulfilled the law now. And will he continue on his mission? Will he go down from this mountaintop and go up to the Mount of Calvary to die? And Moses and Elijah at that moment, Luke tells us, were speaking to him of the departure which he would accomplish in Jerusalem. They were talking to him of his death. And so here once again, in a moment that's filled with anticipation of the death of Christ, the Father speaks. And in a demonstration of the hard-heartedness of man, there were people surrounding Jesus that day who, in hearing the voice of the Father, said, it was thunder or it was the voice of an angel. You know, those who didn't want to believe in the supernatural, of course, said, well, that wasn't thunder. It might have sounded like a voice, but that couldn't have been a voice. That was thunder. And others said, merely an angel. Now, Jesus answered verse 30 and said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so he speaks to them and he says, look, this voice was for your sake. And you need to know that judgment has entered into the world. And the ruler of this world, he calls Satan, will be cast out. Isn't that a scary title that Jesus gives to Satan? It'd be one thing if Satan stood up in scripture and said, I am the ruler of this world. We would say, that's a self-proclaimed title. I don't know that it bears any real weight or merit. But when Jesus stands up and calls Satan the ruler of this world, it's a scary title. He says, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus ultimately conquered Satan on the cross. And one day Satan will be cast out of heaven cast into a bottomless pit, and ultimately thrown into the lake of fire, the book of Revelation tells us. But that day is yet to come, but the victory has been won. But Jesus then describes his death and says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. In other words, what Jesus is saying, when I am crucified, I will draw all kinds of people, the Gentile people, Jewish people, I will draw all people to myself. You know, the thing that's attractive about Jesus truly and ultimately is not some watered down version of Jesus, some crossless Jesus who did not come to atone for the sin of the world, but just came to give us a good example of what it means to be selfless or some other nonsense. No, the, the only real attractive Jesus is the one who died for the sin of the world, the one who atoned for mankind's error. This is the only attractive Jesus and the, the only one that people are drawn to by Jesus himself. Now the crowd answered, verse 34, Jesus, and said, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. 
How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Well, you have the light. Believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. So Jesus here gives one final exhortation at this particular moment. And it's really simple. He tells them, he says, listen, the light is among you just for a little while longer. And while the light is with you, Jesus implores them, he says, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now this takes us all the way back to the very beginning of John's gospel, the prologue, where John described in those first 18 verses, one of the things he described is he, he described Jesus as the light. He calls him the word there in John 1, 1 through 18, but he also calls him the light. And he says, the light came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But there were others who received the light, and to them he gave them the ability to become children of God. And so this theme has been demonstrated by John. Here is Jesus as the light. He comes to his own, and his own did not receive him. And still, though, there would be those who would receive his light, and Jesus would give the right of becoming children of God to those people, speaking of the Gentile church, which was still to come. And so here, though, what you have is Jesus still striving with man, saying, Hey, listen, the light is with you for a little while longer. Receive the light. Believe in the light, he says in verse 36. That is his exhortation. Believe in the light. Now notice what happens next. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And so after he tells them the light is with them for a little while longer, he removes himself as the light and he hides himself from the people. Now, it says in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who, is, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, here what John is doing is he, first of all, gives us this simple recap in verse 37. After everything that has come before, not just in chapter 12, but before, in chapter 11, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and everything before that, where Jesus had healed the and opened the eyes of the blind, raised the lame man, he's worked different miracles and signs, signs that John has recorded for us so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we may have life in his name. And so John records all these miracles, and at the close of it, he says, you know, the last word from Jesus to them was, believe in the light. And they, verse 37, even though he did all of these things, did not believe in the light. And the reader would be left sort of asking the question, gosh, why not? And so John quotes from Isaiah 53, where he talks about the way in which people would reject the message of the Lord a prophecy concerning the rejection of the Messiah. Just an incredulous uh, thing that they would. But he says, well, you know, Isaiah said that it would happen like this. And these people fulfilled that prophecy. Therefore, verse 39, 
John records, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now we have the third part of this progression. It says in verse 39, John says, and therefore they could not believe. First of all, Jesus looks at them and says, believe. Well, you have the light, believe. He urges them. To Jesus, the responsibility is directly upon their hearts. You believe. But then, verse 37, we see that even with all of these signs, they still did not believe. Then you move forward into verse 39, and now you read that they could not believe. And this was partially alluded to and fulfilled in the prophecy of Isaiah as well. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah went before the Lord and said, Yes, Lord, I will. I will go out and prophesy to the nations. I will be your mouthpiece. But Isaiah then said, Lord, how long? Do you want me to carry out this task? And the Lord responded by telling Isaiah, basically, you are going to prophesy until everyone rejects this message. And this is quoted in verse 40, where he talks about those who their eyes have been blinded and hardened their hearts, lest they see and understand and turn and be healed. And this is very typical in scripture, the hardness of heart of man. You see this in the life of Pharaoh. In the Old Testament, where he would not believe, and then God then followed up on his unbelief by hardening his heart. And it's a sad place for Israelites to be, for Jewish people to be, here in John chapter 12, to have so thoroughly rejected their, their Messiah that now God has come behind them and has made it so that they were hardened within their heart. It says, therefore, they could not believe. Just a scary statement. Now, Isaiah said these things, verse 41, because he saw his glory and spoke of him, which is a wonderful truth that Isaiah was actually seeing the second person of the Trinity, seeing the glory of Christ pre-incarnate. In Isaiah 6, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And this would be a warning for John's reader in his day. Now, in verse 44, to the end of the chapter, we have a very simple exhortation from Jesus, which is merely a recap of many other messages that he has taught previously. And it's all about him and his relationship with the Father, that he illuminates the Father, that he came to save the world, and that he came to speak for the, for the Father. Let's read it together. It says in verse 44 that Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He is the illuminating force for God. If anyone, verse 47, hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word, words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus in this mission came to save. The Father will judge. For I, verse 49, have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment to say what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. 
What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. Speaking for the Father. And now we move to a section where Jesus ministers to his disciples. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.